Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Good morning and welcome to Grumlaw Church. We really are so thankful that all of you decided to tune in and check out Grumlaw here today, that you decided to make this a part of your week. We certainly don't take that for granted. Thank you for giving us a shot. We're, we're confident that, that, that God absolutely wants to speak to you today. In fact, I think one of the greatest promises that the God of the universe offers us is that as we move closer to him, he will always move closer to us. Uh, today is an exciting day because we're officially stepping into our annual Christmas series where we, where we eagerly anticipate celebrating the birth of our Savior, the birth of, of your Savior. Make sure you're here for, for, in fact, one of those Christmas services, and frankly, more importantly, invite. Who is that person maybe that right now even you can pull out your phone and just text them grumlaw.com slash Christmas and say, hey, will you come sit with me uh, at one of these Christmas services? Honestly, all of our marketing efforts, and there's a lot of them this time of year, that they pale in comparison to, to you. Nothing is more powerful than you simply asking someone, hey, do you want to come sit with me this Christmas? I honestly have no idea what hangs in the balance of that simple invitation. So again, pull out your phone right now, maybe even just make a couple of notes of like, okay, who are some people that I can extend that invitation to here this Christmas season? Now, as you probably, again, already figured out, the name of this Christmas series is titled The Gift. Where over the course of these next three weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the three different gifts that the wise men presented to Jesus shortly after his birth. Uh, allow me to kind of give us a little bit of context, just in case you're not familiar with, with the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was born in a town called Bethlehem during the reign of King Herod. And, and as already alluded to, shortly after his birth, a group of wise men, that they would travel a long distance to come and, and, and worship Jesus. Now, now, an interesting detail here with the wise men, uh, how many of you actually know how many wise men were there? How many? Anybody? Show of hands. Three, right? That, that's usually what we say, right? Three. Or, or at least that is what we have been led to believe. Namely, because every nativity scene that you've ever seen, that I've ever seen, it features three wise men. But the reality is, uh, we don't actually know how many wise men there were. We just assume three because there's the mention of those three gifts. But, but most actually biblical scholars agree that, that it was more, perhaps even dozens of wise men. You're going to sound so smart dropping that knowledge on other people here this Christmas season now. Now, now what we do know is that these men were, were highly educated, likely incredibly wealthy, and they were desperate to meet the one who might actually be the, the savior of the world. At this point in, in human history, especially amongst the Jewish people, there was so much anticipation and conversation surrounding the, the savior of the world who might come. And so these wise men, that they're excited. Oh my goodness, maybe the Messiah, the Savior of the world is finally here. And we pick up there in Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. There it tells us, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I'm just going to kind of come clean with all of you. Uh, when we had our first child, Logan, uh, nobody, and I mean not one, gave us gifts of gold, frankincense, or, or myrrh. 
We rather received lots of diapers and wipes, and as any parent will tell you, those are actually worth their, their weight in gold. And usually it's at about this time when you talk about diapers and wipes, somebody comes along and gets on their cloth diaper high horse. I, I just want to throw this out there. That has to be the nastiest concept I've ever heard in my life. I, I admire you for wanting to save our planet, but I, I just there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a cleaner, less gross way. Now, these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were not only valuable, they were deeply spiritual and rich with symbolism. Definitely not three gifts that were chosen at, at random. That they would, in fact, specifically foreshadow images that, that Jesus would represent. That the gold, as we're going to see later in this series, it represents the kingship of Jesus. The myrrh, it represents Jesus as the suffering servant or, or the lamb of God. And then we have frankincense, which it, admittedly, as a child growing up in the church, it, it always made me think of Frankenstein. And so I had this mental image of this green monster with bolts coming out of his neck going to visit Jesus. Uh, but frankincense is rich with meaning as, as well. It, it is also frankincense making a bit of a comeback due to the essential oil crowd. Any essential oil people watching? this morning? Yay, that's awesome. Pyramid schemes. Okay, frankincense back at this point in history was an expensive yet, yet practical gift that, that helped to heal sicknesses and, and treat wounds. More specifically, it was the oil that the Jewish priests would burn with the sacrifices that would rise to heaven. Symbolic of the prayers of the people that would be rising in faith to, to God. This is why most biblical scholars agree that, that frankincense represents Jesus as our, our high priest. Now, if you didn't grow up going to church, uh, that terminology, that language, it, it makes absolutely no sense to you. So allow me to kind of nerd out here for a couple of minutes and, and explain. The, the, the priest, back at this point in history, among the Jewish people, he, he served one primary role that was broken down primarily into two functions. The, the priest represented the people, the Jewish people, to God. And the two functions that that priest would serve were, one, he made sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, and two, he prayed prayers on behalf of the people to God. Let's start with the sacrifices, and then we're going to talk about the prayers. Since those first two people stepped foot on this earth, anybody remember the names of the first two people on earth, right? Adam and Eve, that there have been two opposing forces on this earth, that the holiness of God and the sinfulness of, of man. Now, we talk about this all the time around here, actually, but, but there's a lot of pushback, especially nowadays, on that word sin, but probably because it carries like such a, such a weight to it. And, and so we opt instead for words like mistake or, or error in judgment. And, and we actually, if you think about it, we, we even take it a step further than that. It, it's not really sin as, as much as it is me being true to myself, right? It, it's a you-do-you culture. If it isn't hurting anyone, then, then what's the big deal? Though there's a significant gap even in that line of logic, as sin always eventually hurts you and, and someone usually that you purport to care about. I heard it said recently, sin auditions as a friend, but makes you its slave. Here's the point we're trying to make. If we don't understand the holiness of God, we will always have a casual approach to sin. Until we attempt to understand just how holy, just how set apart God is, we'll never understand the cost, we'll never understand the tragedy that, that sin does to us. Now, now, we get our English word holy from a Greek word, agios. More literally translated, agios means set apart, or, or, or I love this phrase, transcendently separate, perfect, flawless, pure. That The God that we talk about here on Sunday mornings is perfect in 
every way. It's his holiness that, in fact, makes him worthy of our worship. That there's no fault, there's no wrong, there is no stain in the living God. As far as the east is from the west, so the gap exists between mankind and our perfect God. This is really, really important. Holiness isn't merely one of the attributes of God. Rather, holiness is the perfection of all of God's attributes. His power is holy. His grace is holy. His mercy is holy. His justice is holy. His glory is holy. Our God is perfect. He is holy. And the challenge that this presents to us, well, let's just be honest, right? We, we are, we're not Paul reminds us in his letter to the Romans, for, for everyone has sinned, and that everyone very much includes you, and it includes me. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Not, not one of us are good. Not, not me, not, not your mama, not even your precious nana. We, we, we all fall short. Now, now, interesting tidbit here. Every major faith tradition holds this as its central tension, what I just articulated. That, that, that we, as human beings, we have a sin problem. And then it, of course, presents a question. What are we, what are human beings going to do about that sin problem that separates us from God? How do we resolve our sin? How do we resolve that rebellion? Now, within Christianity, that, that, that sin that exists inside every single one of us, it, it fractures that intimacy with our, with our holy God. Church, this is why God hates sin so much. It's everything that he isn't. It's quite literally the antithesis of God. It disrupts our intimacy with him. It fractures our relationship with God. And maybe you're watching right now and you've never heard this before, but God is absolutely crazy about you. More than anything else, he just wants to be close to, to you. So if you follow that line of logic, of, of course he hates sin because it, it keeps getting in the way of that intimacy. It keeps getting in the way of that relationship with, with you. Many of you watching right now, you've walked through personally or you have friends or, or family members who have walked through the pains and the, and the suffering that comes along with addiction. And, and as you think about that addiction, whether it's to alcohol or pornography or drugs, you, you don't merely dislike that addiction. I mean, come on, when you think about it, you hate it. Why? Because it keeps screwing up a relationship with a person that you care so deeply about. It, it, it keeps undermining that person whom you love so dearly. It keeps continuing to undermine their future and, and, and what God has in store for them. So it is with God. God's heartbroken over the damage that sin continues to cause to you, to the people around you, and certainly your relationship with him. Now, within the Old Testament or the Jewish faith tradition, uh, once a year the priest would make a sacrifice as a temporary payment for the sins of the Jewish people, uh, traditionally referred to as the Day of Atonement or as it says in your iPhone, Yom Kippur. The, the, the priest would sacrifice an innocent animal while the incense or the frankincense was burning, rising up, again, as we already mentioned, representing the cries for mercy from the people. This animal sacrifice was a bloody, poignant reminder pointing to the death of an innocent one in place of the guilty ones as payment for, for their sins. And then, and how many of you have ever heard the term scapegoat, right? I'm guessing all of us. You're about to find out where we get that term. Then... The, the, the priest would take an innocent goat, 
confess the sins of the people, symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto that goat, and they would then drive that goat into the wilderness or oftentimes off a cliff where that goat would fall to its death. So the sacrificed animal, if you're tracking with me, paid the price for the sins of the people on the altar, and the scapegoat represented the idea that the sins had now been separated from God's people. Now, before I I go any further in this message, I'm I'm just going to kind of pause for a quick moment. Because one, you animal lovers right now who are watching are absolutely mortified. But but I also want to call attention to something that, that every single one of us ought to be feeling at about this point, especially if what I'm articulating right now is, is all new to you. This is weird, right? Like, like can we just be honest? Now, now, us church people, again, we breeze just kind of right on past this stuff. But, but if you take a step back, or again, if this is new to you, th- this is bizarre, it's strange. It's just weird. Slitting animals' throats, sending them off cliffs, it's essential oils burning. It's like, what in the world is happening? Well, let me do my best to explain. Because God is just, that is completely just, sin has to be punished. But God is not only just, he's also, and this is beautiful, he's merciful. Here's the beauty of what's going on with the sacrificial system, as strange as it sounds, at least on the surface. The sacrifice satisfies God's justice, and simultaneously it extends his mercy. Again, God is holy. Sin is the antithesis to his holiness. So again, something has to pay the price. Something has to satisfy his justice. The animal sacrifice, it pays the price. It satisfies the justice of God, the God who is, again, completely just, while simultaneously it is revealing to us his mercy. Because the truth is, is we deserve that penalty for our sin. We deserve to be penalized for our rebellion. But, but God, in his, in his infinite mercy, he allows the animal to, to serve as a substitute. Mercy is extended to the people that he loves, that he cares about so, so much. But it's also worth noting that that this is a temporary covering under the old covenant. And and those of you, again, who are watching, you're new to all this, we aren't, as followers of Jesus living here today, we aren't old covenant people. We are people of, of the new covenant because we have a new, we have a better sacrifice. We no longer have a priest. We have the great high priest, the very Son of God. As the writer in Hebrews tells us, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day after day offering the same sacrifices again and again and again, which can never take away sins. But but our high priest Jesus, he offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Church, this is significant and certainly worthy of us getting excited about. Like we should kind of be like clapping and like jumping off our couches right now. This isn't a temporary covering. This isn't a temporary sacrifice. This is a once and for all sacrifice. The high priest, God in the flesh, our Savior, laid down his life for you as the once and for all sacrifice for our collective sin problem. 
that the blood of Jesus, our perfect, our holy, our blameless Savior, has been shed once and for all, satisfying the justice of God once and for all, extending God's mercy once and for all, mercy that is available to you. I mentioned earlier that every major faith tradition has that exact same tension. What are people to do with that nagging sin problem? How do we, how do we resolve that which we can't solve our, ourselves? But, but exactly one faith tradition, Christianity teaches that God offered himself, that God personally got involved, that, that he freely, willingly, lovingly gave himself as the once and for all sacrifice for the sin problem that we cannot rectify on our own. It was years ago while I was serving at a, at a ministry that, that we're very involved with here at, at Grumlaw, Shiloh, Detroit, that, that I witnessed something that illustrated this so, so well. It was coming closer to wintertime, uh, not, not too far away from what we're experiencing right now this time of year. And uh, uh, one of the things that honestly brought, brought a lot of just sadness to my heart is this time of year when we were down there, there would be a lot of kids showing up in sweatshirts or jackets that, that really weren't jackets. Like they weren't really serving much of a purpose. They certainly weren't keeping these, these kids warm. And here we as the leaders were rolling in with our, our nice, clean, brand new winter coats that would very much be keeping us warm in this weather. And on this particular day, I witnessed something. I I saw a leader, and I saw literally the compassion and love in his eyes Like as, as he watched this particular student walk up and, and had on this jacket that, that we both knew wasn't doing any good. And, and he looked at this student as he approached Shiloh, and he said, hey, I want you to take off that, that beat-up, hand-me-down, not really serving any purpose coat. And then that leader removed his, his new, his clean, his without-blemish coat, and, and he put it on that kid, and he said, hey, this is now, this is now yours. Jesus, our high priest, sacrificed his life so that he could take his robe of righteousness, that, that's how scripture frames it, and, and cover you with it. When you choose to place your trust in the redemptive work of Jesus, you are quite literally covered in his righteousness. It's not yours, it's his. But, but, but he is freely given, he has freely chosen to wrap you in it. And now, and this is more beautiful than the human mind has the ability to comprehend, because of what Jesus has done, God no longer looks down and sees your sinfulness. He sees instead the righteousness of his son. He sees the righteousness of Christ. This is our high priest who freely offered his life satisfying the justice of God once and for all and simultaneously extending his mercy. In church, he's not a distant savior who's feeling sorry for you and feeling sorry for our human condition. He is rather a high priest who understands, who cares more than you have the ability to understand, than I have the ability to understand. Again, back to our writer in Hebrews, it says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings. Other translations read temptations that we do. Yet, he did not sin. Church, this isn't wishful thinking. This, this is true. Whatever you're going through, whatever it is that you're experiencing right now, Jesus understands. 
He, he's not watching us from a distance, just kind of apathetically going, too bad, so sad. No, no, no. He's not judging us for how we're responding to our present circumstances. Rather, he longs to enter into that space with you. He relates to our trials. He, he sympathizes with our pain. He, he understands all that is the human condition because let us not forget, he experienced all that is the human condition. Oftentimes in conversations that I have with people, and I'm talking about like real conversations that extend beyond the weather and how's your day going, the, the, the words that I often hear the, the, the most are words like stress and anxiety and, and worry. Jesus understands and in fact felt those exact same emotions. Leading up to his death, knowing what was coming as he awaited his impending torture and, and pain, as he sat there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as his closest friends dozed off and didn't really seem to care what he was going through emotionally, as he felt nothing but alone, Jesus himself would admit, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stressed, worried, anxious over what he was soon going to face. Jesus understands your anxiety. J Jesus was conceived out of wedlock at a time when, when that was more culturally unacceptable, more scandalous than we have the ability to understand. He, he was raised in a small town where everyone was whispering about him as that bastard child. His own family laughed at him when he claimed to be the Messiah. He was relentlessly criticized, ridiculed, and bullied tempted by the evil one when he was at his weakest and most vulnerable. He grieved the loss of family and friends. He was falsely accused. His closest friends abandoned him when he needed them the most. He even felt abandoned by God, his heavenly father, when he hung on that cross. When Jesus took the weight of, of the sin of the world on his shoulders on that cross, becoming our scapegoat, God looked away. But why did God do that? It's because God is, again, too holy to look upon sin. It's why Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've ever felt distant from God, if you've ever cried out wondering, God, where is your presence that I seem to read about so often in this book that other people tell me about, but I haven't experienced, Jesus understands you. What you're feeling, he felt. Wherever you're hurting, he hurt. He's your great high priest who sympathizes, understands, and longs to enter into your pain, enter into your struggles. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And because he loves you, he longs to be close to you. He longs to see you restored he longs to place his righteousness around you so that when your heavenly father looks down on you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your flaws, he doesn't see your faults. He sees nothing but the righteousness of his son. God in his divine providence sent these wise men with, with gifts, prophetically declaring the nature of Jesus to come. And so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You are able to come boldly before God, not because of anything that you've done, not because you've suddenly gotten your act together, not because you've followed these religious steps, but because of what Jesus 
our high priest, your high priest has done for, for you. You can come boldly with confidence before God, with assurance, knowing that you are loved. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be timid. Come boldly to your heavenly Father. Your Savior Jesus paved that path for you. My three children, Logan, Malachi, and Oakley, they, they don't approach me. They don't approach their dad with hesitancy. They, in fact, come running right into the living room, and, and they jump onto my lap. In fact, it was just last night that my daughter, she came running onto the couch, and then she kind of curled underneath my arm and, like, snuggled right into my chest. She didn't ask for permission. She, she didn't knock on the door ahead of time and say, hey, Dad, is it okay if I come in right now? No, no, no. She came boldly into my presence. You have the exact same opportunity today to come boldly into your Heavenly Father's presence. God has a gift to offer to you. And it came in the most precious, loving way that any of us could have possibly imagined. He freely offered his one and his only son for you. So that again, when he looks at you, he doesn't see the sin and all of our faults and flaws. He rather, again, sees the righteousness of his one and only son. And it's admittedly hard for us to wrap our heads around the idea that, that God would make the standard so simple. That the way that you would get that right standing back with him, the way that you would be restored, it doesn't, again, have anything to do with what you've done, the religious steps that you've taken, whom you've been in relationship with, whom you haven't been in relationship with. It, it, it instead has everything to do with, with belief, trust, faith. Do you believe that the God of the universe got off of his throne and became flesh and dwelt among us? And then after living the perfect life, the life that we were supposed to live, he, he in turn took the weight of your sin, my sin on his shoulders, died the death that was owed to us so that you don't have to. And then three days later rose from the grave and thus conquered death, conquered your sin and paved a way for us to get that right standing back with God. We are told that by simply believing in Jesus that just like that we get that right standing back. And it could literally be as simple, wherever you're watching from right now, you bowing your head and just saying, Heavenly Father, I know that I have a sin problem that I cannot rectify, that I cannot fix on my own. But I believe in your Son. I believe that you love me so much that you sent your one and your only Son for me, that, that, that he would have came for me if it was just me. Heavenly Father, I ask for forgiveness for my sins and I ask from this day forward that I would live for your son, that I would live in the freedom, the power that comes from your one and only son and his redemptive work on that cross. Jesus, come into my life and from this day forward, I choose to follow you. I choose to live for you. And we're told that just like that, we get that right standing back, that the righteousness of Jesus it is put over our shoulders. I recognize that a lot of you watching right now, you, you carried all sorts of earthly burdens in here with you today. Financial stress, rejection, anxiety, physical ailments for you or for a loved one or for a friend. You're tired, perhaps you're exhausted. And again, Jesus understands all of that. 
and he's not judging you from a distance. He, he again, longs to enter into whatever it is that you're walking through with you. And, and I wanted to carve out just a, a little bit of time this morning for you to perhaps pray a simple prayer. For, for some of you, maybe this is your first time actually speaking to directly to God. And I'm going to ask you, wherever you're watching from, maybe just extend your hands like this, just as kind of a symbolic gesture to say, Heavenly Father, whatever it is that you want to speak to me right now, I, I am open to that. Oftentimes, again, we talk about this, you, you take a step physically and watch how your heart follows. And, and you just pray these words, Jesus, I invite you into my fill-in-the-blank. Jesus, I invite you into my physical pain. Jesus, I invite you into my anxiety. Jesus, I invite you into my worry. Jesus, I invite you into my parenting. Jesus, I invite you into my relationships. But will you extend your grace and mercy where I need it most? Will you extend your grace and mercy where I need it the most? Where I might not be recognizing exactly where I need it the most, but you do because, again, you are my heavenly Father. And then just sit there. And perhaps, unlike you've ever experienced before, allow that the Father's presence to come over you right now, to provide that peace that really does surpasseth all understanding. Jesus, I invite you in. Will you extend your grace and mercy where I need it most? Heavenly Father, we really do just thank you right now that you're not the God who watches from a distance, who's judging us, who's getting mad at us for, oh my gosh, how could you feel these feelings again? How could you still be covered up in worry? Don't you realize who I am? Like, that's not who you are. You long, in fact, to enter into whatever it is that you're walking through, whatever it is that I'm walking through. God, I, I thank you that that's the kind of God that you are. Hmm. I thank you that, honestly, we don't really have to second guess that that when we look at how personally you got involved when you sent your one and your only son, our, our, our minds really shouldn't wander that far down that path. It's like, no, like, obviously, God, you care about us. You love us. Otherwise, you certainly wouldn't have given us your son. We thank you, God, that you did make that standard so simple. But the way that we get that right standing back, it just, just come down to, to belief, trust, faith in, in, in your son. I thank you for the people who have had the courage this morning to cross that line of faith, who have finally surrendered their lives to you and just said, okay, it's, it's enough. I can't do this on my own. God, I'm ready to submit to you. I pray for courage for those individuals in the coming weeks, in the coming months, that this wouldn't be this momentary like blip on the radar where they're like, okay, yeah, maybe, but no, they continue to lean into you. They continue to move closer to you. God, I thank you for how you're always teaching us new things, for how your word is alive and true. 
I thank you for what you're already doing during this holiday season, for what you're going to continue to do, for how you're going to continue to show up and show off in our lives. We love you so, so much. It's your precious name that we pray. Amen. I have a quick favor to ask for those of you that, that perhaps crossed that line of faith this morning, that you, you prayed that prayer, you decided to put your trust in Jesus. Um, this Christianity thing, one of the beautiful things about it is that we're not meant to walk through this alone. It's the beauty of the local church. Church, more literally translated, is, is a gathering, it's an assembly, it's, it's a faith community. And, and there's other people that, that want to walk alongside this journey with you. And so I'm asking you, I know it took some courage this morning to even pray a prayer like that. And I'm going to ask you to take one more courageous step and, and text faith decision to, to 94,000. And, and what that'll do is it'll prompt you to just fill out a little bit of information. And uh, one of our staff members will be in touch with you about taking that next step in your faith. Because again, we don't want you to just drift and like say a prayer and then it's kind of like you're off on your own. There's people again who want to walk alongside you to get you plugged in here to the local church. So again, text faith decision to 94,000 and follow those prompts. And uh, again, one of us will be in touch with you here in this coming week.